If you've ever tried to kill a hornet or a wasp, then you know that as soon as you kill one of them, two more are going to show up pretty quick to investigate. Before you know it, kill those two, and then four more appear. And the next thing you know, you've got hornets all over the place. Remember what I said in one of the previous episodes about the cycle of violence, right? Blood follows blood. Well, it can be that way in politics too, and especially when you mix family with politics. And when the Senate killed Tiberius, right, they thought they'd stomped out a fire. But it turns out the embers, well, the embers were just, you know, waiting to light up once again. So today we're going to talk about the, if Tiberius was the politician that Rome needed, well, then Caius was the one they deserved. (laughs) I'll probably repeat that at some point in this episode because it's true. So that's what we're going to talk about today on Courage and Conflict. Caius Gracchus is nine years younger than his brother Tiberius, our hero Tiberius Gracchus. And he's described as being almost a study in opposites from his brother. Right? If you remember, Tiberius is, you know, he's written as like a sober character. Right? He's very measured. He's logical. He's open to argumentation. Right? He tries to go about doing things the right way. And even in his appearance, he's like gentle. You know? He's a sober personality. Well, Caius, on the other hand, Caius is described as being a fiery speaker, right? Uh, As he moves into his political career, right, he's described as being a very, very skilled orator. But at the same time, he gets so caught up in what he's saying that sometimes he, you know, his... His, he, he kind of loses his voice and his voice gets harsh and angry and he loses sort of the track of what he's saying. He gets so involved in his arguments that he just starts screaming, you know, and hurling insults and things like that. And so he ends up sort of employing this servant who it says he, he stands behind him while he's speaking and he's got some sort of sounding instrument, you know, like imagine like a tuning fork or a bell or something like that. And whenever Caius is <laughs> losing the track, so to speak, whenever he's, whenever he's going off the rails, this servant will, you know, bing, hit a little note on his sounding instrument, and that'll bring Caius back, you know, to the center, right? He'll take a breath, control himself, and drive forward, right, with his message. And so... And like I said about, you know, both of the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius and Caius, were both highly educated by their mother Cornelia. So 
you know, Caius had training in oratory skills, and this was something that was important for all elite Romans, you know, to learn how to captivate a crowd. Well, Caius is, you know, known to be spellbinding to the mob. That's the way he's described. And early on in his life, uh, before the death of his brother, uh, Caius first appears sort of in the government anyway. He's on Tiberius' land commission, if you remember. It was like, you know, Tiberius, Caius, and their father-in-law. And he, it's sort of unprecedented at that point because he's kind of too young. I mean, he's an adult. He was like, he was like 20-something at the time, maybe 21. And he's an adult, but he's not, you know, old enough to have like a magistrate office in Rome. And so after this, he kind of, you know, he kind of retires to sort of a quiet life. And he lives alone for a certain period of time. And it says that he kind of avoids the public eye, right? He, he stays out of the business of government. And maybe this has to do with his brother's death. You know, to have Tiberius be killed in such a sacrilegious manner. And remember, it was, you know, sacrilegious to, to kill a tribune on Capitol Hill. I mean, this was crazy. And it was also unprecedented in Rome for people to be executed without a trial, right? And if you want to consider Tiberius to have been executed, you know, being beaten to death by a mob with chair legs and so forth, then you could consider that. But certainly his supporters after his death were treated like criminals and they were executed without trials, which is illegal in Rome. And then all their bodies were thrown into the Tiber, Right, and, and I imagine something like that would certainly affect a 20-something-year-old man to see his brother treated in such a manner. And to some extent, perhaps Caius needed to take some time to, for lack of a better word, to pupate. Right, to decide what he wants to do with his life, who he wants to become, to maybe forge himself into a blade capable of defeating his enemies. That's actually a line I used in a book blurb a while back. But Caius lives a quiet life for for a long while until people start kind of, you know, questioning whether he's going to follow in his brother's footsteps. And he first sort of shows himself on the public stage when he's defending a friend of his from prosecution. And he's so good at oratory that he just convinces everyone, you know, to feel sympathy for his friend and he just gets off just for being such a skilled orator. And immediately there's people in the Senate who see the young Gracchus as a successor to his brother. And they get, you know, there's a sense that they're afraid of him. They try to keep him immediately from turning his eyes on the tribuneship. And, 
you know, Caius, there's, there's not really an indication whether he wants to be Tribune or not, but they they try to uh, shuffle him off into some, you know, minor appointments to, to, to try to keep him from attaining the sort of glory his brother got, because remember, he's got the name of Gracchus, and that's powerful. So... Caius starts to take a more traditional career route, and he gets a military tribuneship. You know, he's he's a he serves as a caster in Sardinia, and the Senate's really happy about this because the Senate gets to shuffle him off, you know, out of the way, get out of Rome, and we don't have to deal with you anymore. We don't have to worry about the young Gracchus becoming tribune if he's off in fucking Sardinia. But Caius, Caius is also kind of a savvy politician, right? And Caius knows that he can use his time there in Sardinia to kind of make a name for himself. And so one of the things he does is, you know, this, the, the legion used to go and just take from the local farmers and things like that, uh, take their food and stuff for the winter. And if you remember from... Uh, one of the previous episodes, I talked about the the foraging parties for the legions, and these were basically just looting parties. You know, they would just go and they would take whatever they needed, and you know, who the hell cares what the local people think? Well, Caius is able to go to these local people and convince them that helping the legions is in their best interest, right? And so he kind of gets the same effect like the the legions were being fed before and they're still being fed but now they're being supported by the local populace like he's able to get the people there to sympathize with the legions right who for you know the gods know how long we're, we're just taking food from them so there's indications early on in his career that he's a really good negotiator like even though he's also known as a great orator you know, and an impassioned speaker, that he's also got really good negotiation skills. And his star, of course, just like his brother's, starts to rise. And you might say the, you know, the the spreading of his light, so to speak, is really starting to scare the Senate. At one point, I believe the king of Numidia, Massinissa, I think it's still Massinissa at this point, because this is before Jugurtha's rebellion. And remember, Jugurtha fought in the Numantine War with Scipio Milianus, which was Tiberius's uh, father-in-law. Or not father-in-law. Uh, Tiberius's, in a way, his, uh, you know, his grandfather's heir, you might say. And so, the king of Numidia like sends a bunch of grain to uh, to the legions there, and it's uh, you know in regard for Caius Gracchus, and it's basically just because the you know the king has a high regard for the Gracchi, and so you know this is another thing that scares the Senate because the Senate, you know, anytime in ancient Rome where one person is starting to get too popular that starts to scare everybody else in Rome all the political players start to worry that 
you know, the popularity that you're gaining is coming right out of their share. You know, the mob is only so big. You can only, you can only gym up so much favor. And so they try to even alter the laws so that Caius has to stay in Sardinia for, you know, for an even longer amount of time because he's there twice as long anyway. He's supposed to have a term of service and then when it's up, he returns to Rome. But they keep him there twice as long as normal. And finally, they try to change the laws to keep him in Sardinia and Caius catches wind of this and he returns to Rome to argue against the laws that they are trying to change, you know, and it, and it's just a, you know, not even a well-hidden attempt to keep him out of Rome. And he's able to argue against these laws. Like I said, he's a great orator and a great negotiator. And these are, you know, trumped-up charges, basically. They, they charge him with abandoning his post and all kinds of things when they're the ones who have been keeping him there. But Caius is able to defeat that. And he returns to Rome with, you know, a little bit more, uh, you know, glory and reputation than he had when he left. And you get the sense that he may be harboring some resentment for the people who had wronged his brother just a few years before. And Caius... You know, Caius, like I said, he's described as being more of an angry person, right? He's not as measured and careful and gentle as Tiberius was. And so Caius is going to shake things up in the government, and he's going to be kind of in your face about things. Whereas Tiberius was, you know, he was trying to make reforms, and, and, and he was trying to, you know, he was going right up against the Senate in a very direct way he was doing so with what you might consider to be the courtesy uh, you know demanded of any Roman citizen you know he still had reverence for the system but Caius on the other hand Caius is a little bit more of a rock star Caius supposedly has a dream when he's running for this caestorship that before he goes to Sardinia and this is probably more of that myth making that's uh, so great in the historical text you know the Romans placed a lot of uh, stock in dreams and omens if you remember Tiberius's march you know his, his final march to the capital where he was killed. There were all these omens that dropped in his path on the way, you know, the 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 birds refusing to leave the cage and the ravens fighting and knocking a, a stone at his feet and things like that. Well, Caius supposedly has a dream of Tiberius. And Tiberius basically comes to him and says, you know, though you may try to escape your fate, you know, you are the you are a Gracchi, you are a Gracchus, basically, and you know you are fated to die 
the way that I did. And so, Caius, whether he circulated that story or whether it was written down later in Plutarch, it definitely seems like something that he may have gone around saying, right? It has a, has a nice ring to it if you're trying to fill the political shoes that your brother once occupied. And so, I believe it's in 123 BCE, Caius is elected as Tribune of the Plebs, which of course he was, right? Of course he was. And he makes a statement very early on. Uh, every, you know, Tribune, apparently, when, they, when, when they're elected, they have like a celebratory speech. And so Caius... He, he gets up on the Rashtra, and rather than facing the Curia, and that's facing the Senate, right, which is sort of the tradition, it's the custom, Caius turns his back on the Senators, right? And this is, you know, it's a subtle move, but one that everyone would have noticed. And everyone would have seen his intentions for exactly what they were, right? He's making a statement that he's not even speaking to the Senate, right? He's speaking to the people. And this is like an in-your-face kind of move that Tiberius would not have pulled, right? But Caius, like I said, Caius is like the tribune that Rome deserves. Right? Caius is fucking Batman. And so Caius basically says, the first thing he says is something like, before your eyes... These men, and he's talking about the senators behind him, murdered Tiberius and 300 of his friends, and then dragged his body through the city to be thrown in the Tiber. Right? And everybody knows in Rome that this, throwing their bodies into the Tiber and denying them their final respects, this is the treatment that Rome gives to criminals. Everyone knows this. And so, Caius goes on to say something like, in the old days, when, uh, you know, men were summoned to answer for their crimes, if they did not answer the summons, then we would send a trumpeter to their front door, you know, so that they would, uh, basically, basically to harry them, you know, to answer for their charges. And his, his last line is something like, how careful were those men of old to uphold tradition and precedent, something like that. And he's basically dressing down the Senate like he's he's calling them out for their crimes against his brother. And he's basically shitting on them for having done such a sacrilegious crime and for having executed all these people without a trial. You know, the Senate, in their fervor to do what they thought was right, you know, they got their hands bloody up to the elbows to protect their own wealth. And everybody in Rome knows it, right? And there's this simmering discontent amongst the people. And this is only, you know, this, this isn't long after Tiberius was killed. So there are people, you know, who remember this event. And this statement, you know, this is like, this is like Caius drawing a line in the sand, you know, and staring the Senate down. It's, it's him letting them know where the battle lines are.
So Gaius enters his office as Tribune with a proverbial fire lit under his ass, so to speak, right? He's able to push a lot of things through. And it's clear from the start that he's got ideas toward revenge because he introduces two big laws to, to start with. It's some of the first things that he introduces. One is that he wants to ban magistrates who have previously been voted out of office from standing for another office, right? And this is clearly aimed at Marcus Octavius, right? The man who stood against his brother and who Tiberius had voted out of office, you know? This is like, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's an attempt to uphold Tiberius's intention and maybe it's just, you know, wanting to put a little pressure on the neck of the man who had stood against his brother, right? Maybe it's personal, maybe it's a little of both. And he decides to withdraw this law only because his mother, Cornelia, pleads with him to spare Marcus Octavius. Now, whether this is because of political alliances between, you know, certain individuals, maybe people that are interrelated with the family, or whether Caius has a soft heart for his mom and Cornelia has a soft heart for the man who was once such good friends with Tiberius. Or maybe Cornelia herself is a savvy politician and maybe she sees an angle that Caius doesn't, right? Maybe she's part of this whole thing. It's hard for me to imagine her not being a part of the political schemes of both her sons, you know, very prominent figures. So Caius withdraws the law for whatever the reason. But the next thing that he introduces is that he wants to give the people the right of appeal when magistrates have acted improperly, right? When Roman citizens have been executed or exiled without a trial, he wants to give the people the right of appeal against the magistrates, right? Basically granting them the right to prosecute those responsible for the death of his brother and his supporters. And this goes into effect. And the, the funny thing is that one of the praetors who is responsible for some of the purging that was done in the wake of Tiberius's death actually flees the city because of this law. And Tiberius doesn't stop there. He reintroduces... I'm sorry, Tiberius. Caius doesn't stop there. He reintroduces Tiberius's land law. Right? Only this time it's more stringent. And then he introduces the corn dole, which like gives a monthly stipend of grain to the poor in Rome, right? And this is eroding this client-patron relationship that the Senate has with a lot of these landless poor in the city. But a lot of times these people would come in and, and for an exchange uh, of maybe a little bit of coin, you know, or support, the, the senators would have votes. And, and, and a mob, you know, they would have their own political support, right? There was sort of a direct tit-for-tat relationship in the Roman Republic. And Caius is eroding that. Almost everything he's doing here is designed to really chip away at the power of the Senate. And the Senate really doesn't like this. Right? They're initially kind of unable to stop him because he's this 
You know, he's described sort of the way that Julius Caesar is described, where he kind of cuts through the red tape. You know, he gets things done. And it's going to take a savvy move by the Senate to sort of stop Caius in his tracks, right? And also, perhaps some missteps on Caius's part, because he takes up a cause that is not so popular with the people in Rome. And we'll get to that. But toward the end of his first tribuneship, Caius has made enemies, right? And the Senate is going to have to do something to counter him. But they, you know, initially before with Marcus Octavius, they found a guy to counter Tiberius, to, to veto his proposals, right? And then Tiberius outmaneuvered them by voting that tribune out of office. And now what the Senate is going to do is they're going to find somebody to kind of play the, you know, popular politician in opposition to Caius. And this is going to kind of, you know, throw a stick in Caius's spokes, so to speak, for a short while. Now, either during the election for Caius's second run as Tribune, and this kind of happens in a strange way, because the Romans, they sort of vote, like I said before, by tribes, right? They, they have centuries that vote, and like some of the wealthy ones go before the others. And I think Caius actually changed this as part of his reforms that the uh, wealthier centuries wouldn't I can't I can't remember the exact thing he did there but the tribunes the tribuneships right there are 10 tribunes and it is either that the the senate right according to Appian the senate couldn't find 10 candidates for the tribuneships on, on Caius's second run as tribune but that has to be untrue Right. Of course, the Senate could have found 10 candidates, but there, there must have been like a trick in the voting to where the tribes were able to vote against one of the last candidates or maybe one of the last candidates didn't get the required number of votes. And so the 10th Tribune uh, defaults to Caius for a second year, something like that. But even though the... You know, the Senate resists Caius. He, he's, you know, the people hold on to him. They want him for a second term as tribune. And as to where, for Tiberius, this was unprecedented. Right, this unconstitutional second term. For Caius, you know, the people embrace this. And it passes through, you know, there must have been resistance amongst the Senate, but it doesn't seem like there was much they could do about it. And either during that election or just after, Caius introduces a law where he wants to add 300 equestrians to the Senate in order to serve on the jury pool, right? And at this time, the senators are the ones who sit on the juries. And so let's say a, you know, a governor of another province commits a crime or, you know, a magistrate in Rome 
exiles someone without a trial. When they are brought up on charges, it is their peers, the other senators. You know, these people with whom they have intermixed loyalties and, and you know, they're kind of buddies. They're playing on the same team. It's, it's them who sit in the juries for everyone. And so the other patricians, nine out of ten, you know, nine times out of ten, unless they have enemies in the jury, they, they just get off for their crimes, right? And so the idea is to add 300 more people from the equestrian class, and these are the businessmen of Rome, you know, the, the wealthy non-elite, if you could say, if you could characterize, you know, them that way. And the idea is that it's going to make it more fair. But the Senate really, really resists this. They really hate it. Because, of course, you know, of course they enjoy their safety in the courts. And this makes Caius a lot more enemies. And the Senate has to come up with a new strategy to resist him. Because now Caius is, you know, in the Tribune and he has allies. He's got a guy named Fulvius. And then uh, the consul at this time, I believe, is an ally of, of Caius Gracchus. And so the Senate has to do something different. And they find a man named Livius Drusus. Marcus Livius Drusus. And they get Livius Drusus to play the populare in opposition. In opposition to Caius, right? Whatever Caius says, well... Levis Drusus just comes behind him and doubles it, triples it, you know. He just makes it even more extreme. And the Senate backs Drusus. While they sneer at Gracchus, they back Drusus. Everything that Drusus says. So Caius wants to found two new colonies and send like, uh, you know, 300 uh, citizens there these needy poor and the senate says he's just playing the popularis you know how dare he he's just doing this for fame but then when Livius Drusus comes up and says no 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 we should found 12 new colonies and send 3,000 needy Romans to to live there you know the senate applauds him and then uh there, there's like a disposition of lands and and Gracchus wants a bunch of these lands to be distributed to veterans and, and like, only for a pittance, like a ceremonial pittance of corn that's like a ceremonial rent that goes into the, into the local treasury. Well, then Drusus comes along and says, you know, no one should have to pay those rents, right? So let's just give the land away. And the Senate applauds him, right? And this is an odd turn for the Senate, don't you think? And so they start to erode... Caius's popularity with the people because with Drusus playing the popular you know the populous politician in opposition to Caius it just kind of makes him redundant you know it, it, it makes his uh, his laws seem impotent in comparison to those that that Drusus is proposing and at the same time Drusus is playing to the crowd and you know winning favor He's given all the glory kind of to the Senate. You know, he's turning around saying, oh, it's not me. It's not me who's offering this to you. It's the Senate, right? And he just turns around and gives glory to the Senate so that the Senate can kind of try and win the mob back over to their side. And in the midst of all this, Caius starts to champion a cause 
that has been a growing problem in Rome for a long time, and it's kind of wrapped up with the land reforms. And that is the problem of the Italian allied cities. Now, the Italian allied cities at this time, because of the problems I mentioned before with the land reforms, the same thing that Tiberius had tried to fix with all the landless poor in Rome and the, and the rich owning these huge estates, you know, that is causing Rome to have to lean more and more on the Italian allied cities to fill the ranks of the legions. And, you know, the, the people in the region around Rome called, you know, Latium and, and the people of Italy, they didn't have Roman citizenship. And they wanted that. You know, Roman citizenship was like a prize. And this has been kind of a hot-button issue in Rome for a while, right? And there are also a lot of old hatreds, you know, on, on the Italian peninsula. There, there, there have been some rivalries with other cities. And that's going to erupt in a later period. But at this time, Caius tries to gain more support by championing the cause of the Italian allies. And he introduces a couple of bills for citizenship for the Italian allies, but he loses some of his own support in doing so, right? One of his friends won't support the bill. Drusus Vito is one of them. And through a whole bunch of argumentation, you know, what, the, what they get in the end is, is a bill that Drusus introduces, which prevents the, you know, citizens of the Allied cities from being scourged, which, you know, is, is like a whipping, so it must have been like, you know, exempting them from a punishment. You know, it, it might have been one of the same rights for Roman citizens. Who knows? I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But it's obviously a watered-down version of what Caius wants. And this is going to start kind of a fervor in the city. Right, this whole issue of the citizenship for Italian allies. It's going to cause a lot of anti-Italian sentiment inside of Rome, right, for anyone who is not a Roman. And in the midst of all this, Caius gets called away to manage a colony on the ruins of Carthage. And, you know, the, the colony is, is kind of ill-fated. There's a lot of bad omens that are going around, but it's not really a huge part of the story. But in Caius's absence, a coalition of his enemies get together, and this includes, like, the consul at this time, a man named Epimius, and another tribune uh, named Rufus, uh, Rufus something or other, I can't remember his name, and then, of course, Marcus Livius Drusus. And they start slowly repealing all the things that Caius had put into place. And also, they start making a lot of attacks on him. And uh, for, for one thing, they accuse his ally, that Fulvius fellow, of having stirred up rebellion amongst the Italian allies. And part of that is this whole citizenship bill, you know? And they accuse him of trying to sow revolt. And that's basically like accusing him of being a traitor. And with this storm of... Uh, attacks on his character and his legislation and his allies. Caius is forced to return to Rome to kind of do damage control. And perhaps leaving for him wasn't a smart move because he'd lost all that power. But because he allowed his enemies to gain ground in his absence, 
his return is not going to be quite as triumphant as he wished, I'm sure. When Caius returns to Rome, a lot of his popularity, as I said, had been eroded by these attacks, by this coalition that, that was against him and his allies. And, you know, his allies in particular, this Fulvius Flaccus guy, is mentioned as one of Caius's major allies. He's the one who was accused of being a traitor. And also during this time, something happens in Rome that adds more fuel to the fire, right? And that is that Scipio Milianus dies suddenly. All right, and Scipio was, of course, Tiberius's uh, brother-in-law, and he's Caius's brother-in-law because Scipio Milianus was married to Sempronia, who was the sister of Caius and Tiberius. And the Senate uses this, you know, to, to bring up more accusations against the, the Gracchus family. You know, they say that uh, perhaps uh, Cornelia had something to do with this. Maybe the daughter, you know. It's, uh, I believe <laughs> I believe Appian, or I can't remember if it's Appian or Plutarch, describes Sempronia as being unloved uh, by Scipio because she was apparently deformed and childless, which, hey, you know, harsh words there, brother. <laughs> but... It's, it's really unknown. Nobody really knows what happened to Scipio. There's speculation that he committed suicide because he just couldn't stop the laws that Caius was pushing through, but this, this, this just seems a little ridiculous to me. The Scipios were more conservative. You know, there was almost like this classic rivalry between the families. The Scipios were like the conservatives, upright traditional Romans, and the Gracchi were sort of like the progressives, you know? They were the earliest, or at least, not the earliest, but people considered them to be some of the earliest populares because their laws, of course, championed the people. But it's kind of unclear, really. Like, I've been talking about this problem up to now as if there are two clear, distinct political parties. You know, on one side, you've got Scipio and the patricians, you know, the conservatives. And on the other side, you've got the Gracchi and... The, the populares, the progressives. But it wasn't entirely that way. Uh, at times, you know, a lot of these senators played to the crowd. You know, being a popularis, it was like something that you did, really more than what you were. But for the sake of the story, you know, there are two sides to this battle, and that's Gracchus and mainly Fulvius Flaccus, his ally. And on the other side, there is um, Rufus, uh, what was his, Mancunius, I, I can't remember exactly his last name, but the, the opposing tribunes and senators that were against him. And this guy named Opimius, who's going to be elected consul during the consular elections. And when Gracchus comes back, as I said, to Rome, he starts trying to do a bunch of damage control, right? Amidst the death of Scipio and all these allegations, Gracchus moves his home like he was living on the Palatine, 
right? In <laughs> kind of like the rich part of town, right? And he moves his house uh, closer to the poor in Rome. And this is sort of like, you know, moving into your electorate kind of deal. And he tries to do a few other things. He introduces a bill where uh, to change the orders of, that the centuries vote in so as not to um, unduly prejudice, you know, the voting. But this is kind of like ineffectual. And he also kind of goes around and uh, steals the seats <laughs> from the... Uh, from uh, it's like a glad you know he steals the seats from the arena, so that the uh, the poor can can attend the shows you know and it's kind of like this weird behavior for him like the people love this kind of stuff, but his peers kind of find it weird and just out, you know out of sorts they think he's acting like a crazy person basically, and so there's also. Uh, at this time, as I said, there was fervor in the city due to the issue with the Italian allies. And the consul at the time kind of raises this, I don't know, he doesn't raise a mob, but he decides to expel all non-Romans from the city, right? And this is amidst all that anti-Italian ally fervor that I talked about. Anyone who wasn't Roman was to be expelled from the city. And Caius actually promises some sort of uh, protection to these people. He puts out an edict that they're supposed to be, they're supposed to have tribunate protection. But during the expulsion, if you will, of all the non-Romans from Rome, even though one of his friends is also, you know, swept up in this, um, I'm not sure if it, you know, if they're killing these people or just, you know, running them out of the city. But one of Caius's friends is swept up in this craziness, and Caius actually does nothing. And it's unclear why. Perhaps he felt that his power was waning. Uh, perhaps he felt that if he tried to step in, that he would completely lose the Senate and he would lose even more power. But it's unclear. But as a result of all this kind of crazy behavior and his failure to act, you know, Caius is kind of looking impotent. And when he stands for a third tribune, tribuneship, he loses. And so Caius is, you know, he loses his power. But still after this, you know, the people still see him as, you know, both a hero and kind of a hot-button figure. And things are going to go ahead when Caius and some of his uh, bodyguards, right? He's walking around with bodyguards at this point because he knows his life is in danger. As I said before, assassination was, you know, fairly common in ancient Rome. And so there's someone named, it's either Antilius or Antillus. It's kind of spelled both ways. But this person is apparently uh, attending a sacrifice or making a sacrifice. And he sees Caius and his bodyguards and his supporters, you know, coming to the forum. And in the text, it's kind of hard to tell what happens. Um, the Antilius or Antillus 
it said he saw Caius in distress and he put his hand on him and said something to him like, you know, spare my country. It says he implored him to spare his country, talking about Rome. And in a way, it kind of seems like he's he's dressing down Caius here. He's sort of accusing Caius of, you know, sailing Rome off the cliff, so to speak. And so Caius gives him, in the historical text anyway, it says that Caius gives him this sharp look. And then one of his followers, you know, basically either either afraid that, you know, Antilius was going to attack Caius, or maybe because he anticipated that Caius wanted him dead, he stabs the guy with either a dagger or a writing stylus and kills him. Now... I'm not sure that it actually happened that way. You know, in my mind, I see it uh, kind of in a different way. Like, imagine Caius walking into the forum with his bodyguards and supporters, right? And you've got Antilius there. Maybe Antilius, you know, in in Appian, I think he says that Antilius was just uh, a regular Roman citizen. But I think Plutarch says that Antilius was actually an attendant to Apimius, who was the current consul of Rome and an enemy of Caius. And so, you know, this guy probably hurled some abuse at Caius and, you know, maybe Caius traded words with him or maybe Caius said nothing and his followers got angry and killed the man. Uh, just imagine, you know, at any political rally, like you, you remember the guy that threw the shoe at George Bush? <laughs> you know, the people who stormed the stage and took the mic away from Bernie Sanders? Uh, these kind of things, they happen, right? Maybe this guy was a heckler. Maybe he was heckling Caius. And his bodyguards were having none of it. But anyway, the death of Antilius, it gives the Senate exactly what they want. Which is an excuse to raise a mob against the populares. So the next day, the Senate takes Antilius's body and they parade it around the city. And they've got like a train of mourners, you know, wailing and lamenting his passing. And they do it without a covering so that the people can see the wounds, you know, that were dealt to Antilius. And they've probably got people bemoaning, Oh, poor Antilius, look at what these enemies of Rome have done. You know, something like that. And they parade Antilius' body past the Senate House. And they call an emergency meeting of the Senate. Which Caius and Fulvius do not attend. And in this emergency meeting, the Senate invests in Apimius, who is the current consul, emergency powers to sort of raise a mob, you know, to activate the militia. And Epimius, you know, he's he's an enemy of Gracchus anyway. And he's all too eager to get this done. You know, now the Senate has the tools it needs. It has the justification to finally move against Caius and Fulvius and these fucking populares, you know, messing up the Roman system. And so... He raises the militia, and in particular these Cretan archers that are part of it, and he marches on the Aventine. And now, Fulvius Flaccus and Caius, 
You know, they know this is coming. They've been called to answer for charges. And Fulvius, apparently, is kind of a hothead, right? He's a little bit of a drunk, maybe. It's said that he, he wakes up in this drunken stupor and he orders his men to arm themselves immediately and he starts putting on weapons. But Caius, on the other hand, refuses to arm himself. Instead, Caius dresses in, you know, just a regular toga and carries only a dagger, right? He's, he's dressing as if he is just going out for the day on his normal business. And there's this scene in the histories that's, you know, probably more inspired by literary events, like, you know, a little bit more of that myth-making where, you know, his, his son, like, clings to his vestments and, and his wife begs him not to go. You know, anytime the wife begs you not to go, you know there's going to be trouble. Happened to Caesar. Happened to Hector. <laughs> but Caius, you know, he, he, he turns to meet his fate with stoicism and this was you know this is a real Roman sort of thing to do to meet your fate with stoicism and you know to silently march forth and and take your licks so to speak and so Fulvius Flaccus he sends his youngest son to treat with um, Epimius and his men right maybe he thinks that a boy will be kind of sacrosanct and, you know, maybe, maybe he thinks it'll soften their hearts. But of course it doesn't. Epimius basically, you know, brushes the child aside. And, you know, he says that he'll only speak to Caius and Fulvius. You know, basically don't hide behind this, don't hide behind this kid. You know, which, fair enough. Fair enough. I certainly wouldn't send my son out to treat with my enemies. You know, carrying a Roman war staff or otherwise. And so, you know, Epimius' word comes back and he wants them to come back and be put on trial. And at this point, it seems that there's still the possibility of a trial, that Epimius is coming here to arrest them, you know, to put them on trial for crimes against Rome. And Caius, Caius agrees. Right? It, it, it seems at this point, like I said, that Caius is kind of resigned to his fate. You know, maybe he... This is, you know, maybe he's thinking that this was always fated to happen because he had that prophetic dream where Tiberius came to him and said he was fated to die the same way. But Fulvius, on the other hand, as I said, Fulvius is kind of a hothead. And so Fulvius says, no, no, we're going to fight. And again, this is the, this is just the excuse that Epimius needs, right? So Epimius, he orders his Cretan archers to fire on Flaccus's men. And they kill a bunch of them. And they execute Fulvius Flaccus and two of his sons right there on the spot. Which again, this is something that just isn't done to Roman citizens. Now Caius, he, you know, Caius, he flees and he takes refuge in like the Temple of Diana. Where he's apparently planning to commit suicide before his enemies can get their hands on him. And in his final moments, it seems he's, you know, kind of bitter. He prays to Diana that, like, the Romans be held in eternal servitude for being so fucking blind or something like that. Because now that Epimius is here, 
you know, all of Caius's support has just kind of melted away at the first sign of violence, right? As soon as Fulvius and his men were attacked, Caius's support fled into the streets, just melted away. And Caius is left with like a few of his, you know, closest retainers and a servant named Philocrates, I believe, who is a slave. And, you know, Caius is getting ready to commit suicide, but his friends, you know, they're all like, what are you doing? You can't kill yourself. They convince him not to do it. And they tell him that they'll hold off Apemus' men while he escapes across the Tiber. And so they all try to flee yet again. And a pursuit takes place soon after this to where, you know, Caius and his supporters, they're running down the street. And all the people are kind of urging him on. You know, go, Caius, go. And though Caius and Philocrates, who are kind of, you know, they're the ones that everyone's trying to, to help escape. Though they, they're begging for a horse, nobody will give them even a horse. And so, even though Caius has done all this for the Romans, they won't even give him a horse with which to outrun Apemius and the militia that's marching behind him. And apparently these people are like right on his tail. And Caius is able to take refuge in a, a, a sacred grove that's dedicated to the Furies. Which, you know, may also be one of these literary devices, you know, because the Furies are associated with vengeance and things like that. And there in this sacred grove, before his enemies can put their hands on him, Caius Gracchus commits suicide. And then Philocrates, his servant, kills himself, you know, atop his body, or whatever, and they both die together. Again, this is one of those noble suicides, like I talked about with Numantia. Now, there's another version of the story where his, you know, his pursuers actually catch up with him. And they, they kill him. And they stab Philocrates. You know, that Philocrates, like, throws himself atop Gaius, you know, in a, in a last-ditch effort to protect him. And his pursuers stab Caius through Philocrates. But I kind of enjoy the, the noble sacrifice idea. And this is the, you know, this is the first time, the, the last time with Tiberius, the, the violence had been civilian, so to speak, right? He'd been clubbed to death by other senators, you know, in this outbreak of violence. And, and though it was terrible, like this time, this time the Senate okays it, right? The Senate votes special powers to Epimius to pursue him with the military, right? And Flaccus's supporters are all cut down, you know, with arrows and swords. And Caius would have been as well. But before his enemies could get their hands on him, he's able to take his own life so that he at least denies them that one final satisfaction.
violence is over, 3,000 Roman citizens lay dead in the streets. And every one of them got the same treatment as Tiberius and his supporters. Their bodies were dragged through the city and dumped into the Tiber, right, which was the treatment that Rome gave to criminals. And, you know, their wives are forbidden to mourn, which is like the duty of the wife in the Roman household. And all the families, you know, had their property seized by the Senate. You know, they were just basically looted. They were dispossessed. And this became the thing to do to your enemies, right? And now your enemies could be Roman citizens. Right? And you could commit this violence as consul at the head of a militia with the bidding of the Senate. Now, Caius, they actually cut off Caius's head, right? Because Epimius had promised, you know, the weight of Caius's head in gold to whoever brought it to him. So there's a story about a guy named Septimius, I believe it is, who cuts off Caius's head and somehow he's able to remove the brains and then he fills Caius's skull with lead and presents that to Epimius, you know, to increase the weight. <laughs> this is, you know, kind of uh, a little bit of morbid ingenuity, you might say. Like, how did he even do that? How did he suck the brains out? <laughs> you know, you think you'd have to let that cool down, filling somebody's skull with molten lead. But anyway, even Caius's wife, whom I believe her name is Lycinia, she's dispossessed of her dowry, which is not even, you know, that doesn't even belong to Caius. That's supposed to belong to her in the event that her husband dies or the marriage is dissolved. You know, that's her wealth. And the Senate takes that too. Which is just unconscionable. And this is really a turning point in Roman history, in my opinion. You know, now they've actually come out with blades against their political enemies. And the Senate has acted to seize the property of their ideological enemies and the people who supported them. And like even, you know, Flaccus, his son, one of his sons dies at his side in the fighting. And then the youngest son, the one that Flaccus sent out to treat with Epimius, you know, they even execute him, a boy. And there's some story about Epimius allowing the boy to choose his method of execution, which, hey, you know, how kind of you, Epimius. You piece of shit. This is really a sac, you know, a further sacrilege. You know, before with Tiberius, 300 Romans had died, and now with Caius, 3,000. And the Senate, again, believes that it can kind of cut off the head of the snake and kill the movement, right? If you kill the figureheads, the movement will die. But they're kind of blinded by their own positions, right? There's this sort of disease that rich people get where they're so far removed from 
you know, the consequences that the rest of us who live in the dirt have to deal with, that they believe they can get away with anything, right? That nothing can touch them because nothing has touched them. And this is kind of true for the Senate, right? They've been able to get away with all these crimes for so long. Right? There's been no accountability. And why would there be? And so they have this mistaken belief that they can kill Caius and Fulvius Flaccus and Tiberius. And it'll just fix all their problems. You know, this will go away. We'll sweep it under the rug. And they even have Epimius build a temple to celebrate the death of Caius Gracchus. And it's kind of put forth as this, you know, action that's done to kind of heal the nation. That, you know, we're going to build this temple and, you know, we're all going to be together now. Everything's fine. This, you know, this division between us is over now. But of course it's not over. Right? If you were a commoner in Rome at the time... You'd probably see this the way that I see it. You know, it's, you know, now they've, they've built this temple to celebrate their crimes. You know, they've gilded their crimes and, you know, carved pretty faces into them. And they expect the common people in Rome to just forget that the Senate has twice now killed their champions. And the discontent is only going to grow because it's not just the Roman poor now who have had their champions taken away. It's also the Italian allied cities because, remember, Caius and Flaccus were championing their cause as well. And like I said, when the, sen- when, you know, when the Senate kills this wasp, you know, two more are going to show up and then four more. You know, they try to stamp out Caius's flame well The embers have already spread. And things are just going to get worse. Thanks for coming with me today on this dark and twisted journey to the life and death of Caius Gracchus, brother of Tiberius, heroes of Rome. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please like, follow, subscribe, leave us a review, and win our eternal undying love. If you really enjoyed this, you can head over to my website, That's dwhawkins.com. And if you'd like to read, I'll send you two free fantasy books. The start of a six-book, currently in the works, seven-book series called The Seven Signs. Next time, we're going to continue the story about the rise of the next popular politician who, since the Senate have stomped out the Gracchi brothers, you know, who were at least trying to do things in a good way. Well, the next guy that comes along, he he's just going to be a monster. And I know you're going to love that story, so tune in next time on Courage and Conflict. <laughs>